So last week we started, uh, the, we had this scripture that was sort of introducing the season of Pentecost. And I, I felt like, okay, with each new season, since this is kind of a new tradition for us, we should study some of the theology of why we're doing what we're doing. And uh, studying the Holy Spirit and trying to uh, give a 30-minute discussion on the theology and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, it's not an easy thing to do. So I, I, I started um, going back to my seminary studies, reading some old stuff, and I, I remember that we just went through this time where we affirmed the 39 articles. We went through each of them understanding why we believe what we believe and what it is we do believe. And uh, one of those things, we're affirming these homilies. And not to make a really long um, introduction here, but the homilies were sort of doctrinal dissertations almost. They were doctrinal statements of what the church was going to believe because no one had had the, the Bible in their language. So it was like the theology of what the church was going to believe right at the time of the Reformation. So I read this this homily on the Holy Spirit, and I, I, f I closed my books and felt like there's no possible way to do better than this. Um, it's, it's high doctrine. It's almost as if you've been listening to a, a seminary lecture. Um, but it came in two parts, and we started it last week, and we'll, we'll finish it this week. So last week, the homily, and a homily is sort of something that I'm going to read to you. So I, I said last week, I'm going to do something that I do all the time and something that I've never done before. I read all the time. I uh, don't normally get up here and read. But uh, a homily is something that would be read. So if I could have a lectern and climb up and look down and talk in an English voice, it would probably come across better. But we'll do with what we got. Last week we discussed the coming of Pentecost, the birth of the church, and what the power of the Holy Spirit is supposed to look like in the life of, of a believer. This week we're going to discuss what the Holy Spirit should look like in a person's life. And and very expressly what it does not look like in a person's life. Understand that this homily is smack in the middle of the Protestant Reformation. So I actually did a bit of editing because there was some calling out of people that are long gone and it would be useless to call them out from this homily, although what they did is, is, is left in here intact. Um, there's going to be some language that's specific to the Church of Rome, because this is a time when the Protestant Reformation is breaking away. What I want you to do, since, since we're hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in the future, is not to try to look backwards in this homily, but to look right now in this homily, because what you'll find is, in so many ways, we're in the same boat. In so many ways, we've experienced the same thing. And it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that there is any hope to keep things on track, whether you're a Protestant, or any of those flavors, or whether you're a Catholic, 
Only through the power of the Holy Spirit do we have hope. So, so moving forward into the second part of the homily of the Holy Ghost. When our Savior Christ departed out of the world to his Father, he promised his disciples to send down another comforter that would continue with them forever and lead them into all truth. John fourteen sixteen, John fifteen twenty six. The scriptures bear witness to the fact that this is exactly what happened. We must not think that this comforter was only promised or given to the apostles. The comforter was promised to the church of Christ throughout the entire world for all time. For unless the Holy Ghost had always been present, governing and preserving the church from the beginning, it could have never sustained such terrible times of affliction and persecution with so little damage and harm as it has. Jesus' words are very plain on this, saying that the spirit of truth should abide with them forever, that he would be with them always. He meant by grace, virtue, and power, even to the world's end, John fourteen seventeen and Matthew twenty eight twenty. In the prayer that he made to his father a little before his death, he made intercession not only for himself and his apostles, but for everyone that would believe in him. In other words, for his whole church, John seventeen twenty and 21. St. Paul said, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, the same is not his. Romans 8, 9. In the next breath, he says, We have received the Spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8.15. So, it is evident and plain here that the Holy Ghost was given not only to the apostles, but also to the whole body of Christ's congregation. Although not in the exact same form and majesty as he came down at the Feast of Pentecost. But here is where the controversy lies. Whether all men can claim for themselves the Holy Ghost and his power or not. The bishops of Rome have for a long time challenged this, reasoning it this way. The Holy Ghost, they say, was promised to the church and will never forsake the church. But in the process, they are claiming to be the chief heads and the principal part of the church, therefore claiming the Holy Ghost forever. And whatever they decree are uncontested truths and oracles of the Holy Ghost. So that you may perceive the weakness of this argument, it is important to teach you first what the true church of Christ is, and then consider whether this agrees with the claims of these bishops. The true church is a universal congregation or fellowship of God's faithful people built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the head cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. And it has always borne three notes or marks. One, pure and sound doctrine. Two, 
the sacraments ministered according to Christ's holy institution, and three, the right use of ecclesiastical discipline. This description of the church is in agreement with the scriptures of God and to the doctrine of the ancient fathers, so that no one can find true fault with this. Now, if you will compare this with the church of Rome, not as it was at the beginning, but as it is presently. And let me step out here and say presently is the mid-1500s. And has for the space of 900 years been, you can see that it couldn't be more far removed from the true nature of the church. They aren't built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, retaining the sound and pure doctrine of Christ Jesus. Neither do they celebrate the sacraments in a way Christ ordained them. They've intermingled their own traditions and inventions by chopping and changing, by adding and plucking away, so that now they are completely different. Christ commended to his church a sacrament of his body and blood. They have changed it into a sacrifice for the living and the dead. Jesus ministered to his apostles and to other men without any distinction or favoritism. They have robbed the lay people of the cup, saying that for them only the bread is sufficient. Stepping aside again. At this time, only the priests could take the cup. The common people only received the bread. Christ ordained no other element to be used in baptism other than water. The baptismal waters are joined with the word, and it is made, as St. Augustine said, a full and perfect sacrament. Thinking themselves wiser than Jesus, they say this isn't enough. They use spell-like incantations as they hollow the water and add things like oil, salt, spittle, candles, and other such unnecessary ceremonies that serve no use and are contrary to the plain rule of St. Paul, who wills all things to be done in the church unto edification, 1 Corinthians 14.5. Christ ordained to the church the authority to break fellowship with notorious sinners and to absolve and restore those which are truly repentant. This power has been abused and used for a leader's own pleasure. Furthermore, there are priestly leaders who curse the godly using tradition and even using scripture. They also absolve those who are known to be unworthy of any Christian society. In other words, they affirm that which is clearly not good to be acceptable. As for those who desire to make an example of people, let them search their own lives. To be short, look at what our Savior Christ pronounced of the scribes and Pharisees in the gospel. The same may be boldly and with safe conscience pronounced of many a wayward spiritual leader. They have forsaken and continue to forsake the commandments of God to erect and set up their own constitutions. 
this being true. As anyone who deeply studies this out in Scripture will see, we may well conclude according to the rule of Augustine that these and their defenders are not the true church of Christ. This being the case, they are much less than the chief heads and rulers of the church universal, as they claim. Whoever abandons the scriptures concerning the head, even though they might be found in many places of worship, they are not in Christ's church. Augustine. So, where is the Holy Ghost which they so stoutly claim for themselves? Where is the spirit of truth that will not allow them in any way to err? If it is possible to be there where the true church is not, then it is among these kinds of leaders. They are simply and vainly claiming that which they do not have and nothing else. St. Paul, as you heard before, said, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, the same is not his. And by turning the words, it can truly be said, If any man be not of Christ, he doesn't have the Spirit of Christ either. Now to discern who are truly his and who are not. We have this rule given to us, that his sheep always hear his voice, John 10.3. And St. John also said, he that is of God hears God's word, John 8.47. So it holds true that all spiritual leaders, in not hearing Christ's voice, as they ought to do, but in preferring their own decrees rather than the clear word of God, essentially prove to the world that they are not of Christ and therefore cannot be possessed of his Holy Spirit. Typically, they will claim that there are many necessary points not expressed in Holy Scripture, which were left to the revelation of the Holy Ghost, who being given to the church according to Christ's promise, has revealed many things over the years which the apostles could not in their time handle. John sixteen, seven. This kind of stuff is amazing because this kind of stuff is happening now. Pretty much everything I'm reading about, you can go, yeah, I can see that, right? And we're 600 years back. To this we may easily answer by the plain words of Christ teaching us that the proper office of the Holy Ghost is not to institute and bring in new ordinances contrary to what Jesus himself taught. The Holy Ghost will come and declare these things which Jesus taught so that it might be truly and thoroughly understood. According to Jesus' words, when the Holy Ghost shall come, he shall lead you into all truth. John sixteen thirteen. So what truth is he talking about? A different truth than he had already expressed in his word? No. For he said, he shall take what is mine and show it to you. 
Also, he shall bring you in remembrance of all things that I have told you. John 16, 15. It is not the duty of believers under pretense of the Holy Ghost to bring in his own dreams and fantasies into the church. Rather, he must diligently subject his ideas and words to the authority of Christ's Holy Testament. Otherwise, in co-opting the Holy Ghost to say what he wants, even if it is contrary to Scripture, he blasphemes and grieves the Holy Ghost to his own condemnation. Now, to leave their doctrine and come to other points, what shall we think or judge of this kind of leader's intolerable pride? The scripture says that God resisteth the proud and showeth grace to the humble. Also it pronounces them blessed which are poor in spirit, promising that they which humble themselves shall be exalted, Matthew 5, 3. And Christ, our Savior, desires all who belong to him to learn of him because he is humble and meek, Matthew eleven, twenty-nine. As for pride, St. Gregory said, it is the root of all mischief. And St. Augustine's judgment is this, that pride makes men devils. Can any man then who hears or reads a doctrine contrary to this honestly say that they have the Holy Ghost within them? St. Bernard said, What greater pride can there be than that one man should prefer his own judgment before the whole congregation as though only he had the Spirit of God? And Chrysostom pronounced a terrible sentence against the proud, affirming plainly that whoever seeks to be chief in earth shall find confusion in heaven. And that which he strives for, the supremacy, won't be reputed among the servants of Christ. He also said, to desire a good work, it is good, but to covet the chief degree of honor, it is mere vanity. The writings of these fathers exposes the great pride present among us in grabbing for themselves a superiority above everyone, including ministers and bishops, kings and emperors. But as the lion is known by his claws, so let us learn to know these men by their deeds. What shall we say of him that made the noble king Dandalus to be tied by the neck with a chain and to be laid flat down before his table, there to gnaw bones like a dog? These examples that I'm going to give are things that happened in church history. I'm just, I'm just taking out the names. Should we agree that the man who ordered this, though he claimed it, actually had God's Holy Spirit within him and not rather the spirit of the devil? 
What shall we say of him that proudly and contemptuously trod Frederick the Emperor under his feet, applying the verse of the psalm to himself, You shall go upon the lion and the adder, the young lion and the dragon you shall tread under your foot. Psalm 91.13. Shall we say that he had God's Holy Spirit within him and not rather the spirit of the devil? What shall we say of the person that armed and instigated the son against the father, causing him to be taken and to be cruelly starved to death, contrary to the law of both God and also of nature? Should we say that he had God's Holy Spirit within him and not rather the spirit of evil? What shall we say of the man that made Henry the emperor with his wife and young child to stand at the gates of the city in the rough winter, barefooted and bare-legged, only clothed in underwear, eating nothing from morning to night for three days and nights? Shall we say that he had God's Holy Spirit within him and not rather the spirit of the devil? Many other examples could be given. An illegitimate child was born to one such leader as he was going solemnly in procession of the cross. Another threw the writings of St. Peter into the river Tiberius. Another put five cardinals in sacks and had them cruelly drowned. Another persecuted the dead body of his predecessor after it had been buried eight years. Another, after having his enemy delivered into his hands, had him stripped naked, then had his beard shaved. He then hanged him up a whole day by the hair, then sat him upon a donkey with his face backward toward the tail and had him carried around the city to be miserably beaten with rods. As if this humiliation weren't enough, he had him banished from his homeland forever. But to conclude and make an end, we must first find the lesson in all of this. Wherever you find the spirit of arrogance and pride, the spirit of envy, hatred, Contention, cruelty, murder, extortion, witchcraft, the conjuring of the dead. Assure yourselves that that is the spirit of the devil and not of God. No matter how much the person pretends to be holy, For as the gospel teaches us, the spirit of Jesus is a good spirit, a holy spirit, a sweet spirit, a lowly spirit, a merciful spirit, full of charity and love, full of forgiveness and pity, not paying back evil for evil, extreme for extreme, but overcoming evil with good, and remitting all offense, even from the heart. According to this example, if any man lives uprightly, then it can be safely said that he has the Holy Spirit within him. If not, 
then it is plain that he's using the name of the Holy Ghost, but most definitely doesn't have it within. Therefore, dearly beloved, according to the good counsel of St. John, believe not every spirit, but first try them whether they be of God or not. First John 4, 1. Many shall come in my name, Jesus said, and shall transform themselves into angels of light, deceiving, if it be possible, the very elect. They shall come unto you in sheep's clothing, being inwardly cruel as ravenous wolves. Matthew 24, verse 5. They might put on a great show of holiness and an innocence of life so that you will hardly or not at all discern them. But the rule that you must follow is this, to judge them by their fruits. Matthew 7.20 If they bear fruits of wickedness and not, then it is impossible that the tree of whom they proceed is good. Such has been the case with many spiritual leaders, some of whom we have discussed today. These people would worthily be counted among the number of false prophets and false Christs which deceived the world a long while. Luke chapter 21, verse 8. So may the Lord of heaven and earth defend us from such tyranny and pride that they never enter into this vineyard again to disturb his flock but they may be utterly confounded and put to flight in all parts of the world. And may he of great mercy work in all men's hearts by the mighty power of the Holy Ghost so that the gospel of his Son Christ may be truly preached, truly received, and truly followed in all places to the beating down of sin, death, the devil, and all the kingdoms of Antichrist so that like scattered and dispersed sheep finally being gathered into the fold once again, we may in the end rest all together in the bosom of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there to be partakers of eternal and everlasting life through the merits and death of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So there you go, two, two high theology things, and I um, recommend, like I did last week, probably should go back and listen to the podcast. It's hard to get in one sitting, um, or I can provide you with, with, the, um, with the Word document. But if you want to understand the theology of the Holy Spirit or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit that we adhere to, then these two homilies go a long way in, in filling that. So we move to Pentecost next week. It's funny, I grew up Pentecostal and never really celebrated Pentecost. (laughs) And I don't know why. It seems kind of odd. But Pentecost is the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church itself. So for us, it's a high holy day. It's an important day that we observe. So it felt like at least this year, let's, every time we're coming to a new holiday, let's go through the theology of it. And um, this is the concisest way I could do the doctrine of the Holy Spirit without making it a six-week 
six-week thing that, that I did. All right, so let's, let's come to the Lord's table together.